So congregation, we bring, like I said, the, the first missionary journey of Paul to a close in this chapter. And as I sat to study this passage uh, this week, I couldn't help but just be astonished. And astonished is too small a word. I think, I think that the young people amongst us would say, that's insane. But when Paul got to Derby, that was the last city on the stretch, right? Remember, A-I-L-D, Ailda, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Try to keep those four cities straight. But in Lystra, you'll remember, as we read, Paul was stoned probably to death. And God miraculously raised him back again. And then in Derby, Paul went, that was the last city. And then in Derby, my friends, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back through all four of those cities again. Now you have to stop and think, Paul, that is just sheer madness. You, you almost lost your life in Lystra. You can't possibly think that it would be the better part of wisdom to go back through those cities. Paul, you need to make tracks back to Antioch as fast as possible and by the shortest route possible if you want to live and survive to ever see your loved ones again. But you see, my friends, that's not how Paul thinks, is it? And as a congregation, we've been thinking over the last couple of weeks about this missional life, this approach to life that, that is so different than, than the approach that we, we naturally have in our own minds and our hearts, isn't it? And we see it in the life of Paul. And, and I know that when we put our own life against the Apostle Paul's life, right, we, we can't even stand in his shadow. But still, uh, I, I couldn't help but draw your attention to this profound example of Paul whose life is so consumed by the love of Christ that to him, the wisest course of action is to go right back to those places where he had come from. I almost feel like just stopping the sermon right there, my friends, and just telling you to go home and meditate on that for a minute and just think about what that must have meant. Put yourself in Barnabas' shoes when Paul says, let's go back to those other cities and see how they're doing. You know, and you could just think and imagine, I mean, Barnabas must have had an amazing uh, humility to, to receive this from this younger man. When, you know, Barnabas, at the start of the mission journey, remember we said he was really the leading figure there, right? Paul was kind of his apprentice. But that switch, remember in the house of Sergio Paulus, when uh, Paul confronted Elymas, right? We noted that from then on, Paul seemed to take the lead. And now Paul suggests to this older man that they go back into all four of these cities. How many of you here wouldn't have been like John Mark, who remember that when Paul, when they got to Perga, and Paul said, let's go to those four cities, John Mark said, I'm going back to Jerusalem. Now I have to believe, my friends, that all of us here would have been with him. At any rate, what an amazing thing it is, my friends, that Paul is so constrained, as he says in 2 Corinthians 5, so constrained by the love of Christ, that the only possible course of action he sees is to go right back to those places where he suffered so much abuse and persecution. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. My friends, in one verse, you have that the missional life encapsulated. There it is. That's it. That's it. I count my life of no account in order that I might testify to the grace of God. 
That, my friends, is the, the missional life that we've been trying to think about as a congregation over the last couple of weeks. Well, let's move on then to consider this passage before us, especially these, these closing verses from verse 21 to the end of how Paul goes back to each of these churches and speaks to them. And we notice that the basic message, now again, uh, Luke, who is writing the book of Acts here, it greatly summarizes, right? Obviously, Paul said many more things than what Luke, what Luke records here. But we can believe that under the inspiration of God, Luke gives us the most important, the leading details of what Paul said to each of these four churches as they went back. So we come to verse 22. He's strengthening the souls of the disciples. And then here's the, the, the basic gist of what Paul said to these Christians in, again, remember the cities, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. He says, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So there it is, to continue in the faith. That's the title of the sermon this morning, staying true to the faith. And then he has, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So let's consider then, in the first place, that line that Paul gives, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Now, my friends, buried in that uh, instruction that the apostle gives to these four cities is this idea of spiritual entropy. Now, entropy is a word from science, right? Things are always winding down, right? Things, systems that are orderly are always becoming more disorderly. You guys, uh, uh, we all know this, my friends, because we all have lawns, right? And we have gardens, and we have landscaping. And you know that uh, the minute you step back, right, uh, it begins to descend, right? The weeds begin to move in. They begin to grow up, right? And pretty soon you're out there with your, with your hands to pull the weeds or the roundup or whatever it may be, right? There's, uh, an ordered system always moves into disorder, Now, this is one fact of our Christian life, my friends, that we must confront. And I gave you this quote from, this is a man named Octavius Winslow. And he gave this quote. I find it very, very instructive. Let me read it with you. He says, if there is one consideration more humbling than another to a spiritually minded believer, it is that after all that God has done for him, after all the rich displays of his grace, the patience and tenderness of his instructions, the repeated discipline of his covenant, the tokens of love received, and the lessons of experience learned. After all that, there should still exist in the heart a principle, the tendency of which is to secret, perpetual, and alarming departure from God. Truly, there is in this solemn fact that which might well lead to the deepest self-abasement before him. So there Winslow is is stating the truth, my friends, that spiritually in our life and in our walk with God, we always tend towards decline. We always tend to spiritual weakness. Now that's the fact that we must uh, uh, own this morning. Before we can fully understand the Apostle's exhortation to continue in the faith, that we are always tending towards decline. Entropy, spiritual entropy. 
And that, my friends, is why the leading exhortation that Paul gives to these four cities is to encourage them to continue in the faith. Now, if Paul is encouraging them to continue in the faith, that implies, doesn't it, that there is this tendency to go away from the faith, to to decline, to move away from it. And that we have as Christians intentionally, that means it has to be part of our purpose and our resolve to remain in the faith. It does not just happen automatically. Just like your lawn and your landscape and your garden does not just automatically, the, the, the corn and the peppers and the beans and the, and the potatoes don't just grow up and the weeds just all die. No, it all becomes disorderly unless intentionally you go up into that place and work on it to turn back that decline and to keep it in a state of orderliness. Now, the same thing is true for us spiritually, my friends. Now, I note also that the apostle says here to continue in the faith. Did you notice that? Continue in the faith. I I would have thought to myself that he would have said, stay true to Christ. Stay true to God. Now, of course, ultimately, that's certainly what the apostle means, to stay true to Christ. But my friends, when the apostle says continue in the faith, he's implying, right, that there, and by the way, faith there doesn't necessarily mean faith as if the faith that we exercise in Christ. Here it's talking about the faith or the the doctrines of the faith, the truths of the faith. Stay true to the truths of the faith. In other words, the truth that I've taught you about Christ. Stay true to that. This teaches us again, my friends, that it's possible to be true to a Christ of our own imagination. I think we we considered that when we were going through the catechism some time ago. And we talked about uh, what are the things that you believe. This was some months back. And remember, we were given the, the, the Apostles' Creed with all its statements about Christ and about God the Father and about God the Spirit. It's possible, my friends, to be true to a Christ that is a figment of our own imagination. And here Paul says, be true to the faith. In other words, the truths that I have taught you about Christ. So yes, of course, our allegiance is always to Christ. But which Christ? Which Christ? Is it the Christ of the Jehovah's Witnesses? Is it the Christ of modern liberal progressive churches? Or is it the Christ of the gospel, the Christ that we are taught in the scriptures? So remain true to the faith. And of course, that faith is what leads us to the feet of Christ. So yes, Paul is saying remain true to Christ, but remain true to the truths that I've taught you about who Christ is, what he did on our behalf. So that in the first place, this entropy, that we must confront, uh, we must confront this fact of entropy in our life. And I hope, this morning, my friends, that you're able to own that fact, that that is a reality in my own life. Now I move to the cause, the cause of this decline. Now the cause of this decline, of course, we could say in the first place is because we are human, we have hearts that are naturally sinful, and yet the apostle identifies here a, a cause which greatly accelerates this decline. Right? And that's the second part of this exhortation that the, the apostle gives in, in, number, in verse 22. He strengthens the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now here, my friends, you have a cause. I would not say this is the basic cause, the, the root cause. I think that lies deeper in, the, in our own human nature, which is sinful, even after having received God's grace. But certainly the, the tribulations and the disappointments that we face in the life and our walk with God 
accelerate this decline, don't they? Now, in the apostles' case, it would have been these persecutions that he faced. And again, we can think about what happened at Lystra, right? At Lystra, where he was stoned to death, probably. At Iconium, where the, where the, the Jews came from Antioch and stirred up all kinds of persecutions against him. And at every, every single place, the apostle faces these persecutions, this abuse, and these harassments from people who don't like the message that he's bringing. And those tribulations can cause a person to decline. They accelerate this process of entropy because we feel this pressure. We feel this pressure on us. And we grow weary of it after a while, don't we? And we start to compromise. We start to move a little to the left or a little to the right. We take our eyes off the goal. We look for a more comfortable place in our life. And the process of this decline is accelerated. You can think, by the way, my friends, of, of the, the letter that uh, 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 someone wrote to the Hebrews, right? The letter of the Hebrews, which is very much trying to call the Jewish Christians to stay true to the faith because they were under so much pressure to, to go back to the original Jewish religion from which they had came. Pressure, pressure, pressure. And also in the life of believers everywhere, we know that it is also a truth of the Christian life that Satan never stops. He never stops maneuvering. He never stops looking for that best position from which he can knock us off that path, from which he can dislodge us, he can, he can make us waver. He never sleeps. He never grows tired. He's always looking for that place, my friends, because the devil has a goal. I've said it many times from this pulpit, my friends, the devil has one goal and one purpose in life, and that is to drag you down to hell with him. That is his goal. And he never stops working. Young person in our midst this day, children to the oldest one, you can be sure that the devil is working overtime. He's not working overtime. He's working all the time to drag your soul down to hell with him. You can count on it. And because of that, he places all kinds of things in our life. He places ridicule. That's a hard one to take, isn't it? We hate to be ridiculed. We hate to be taunted and made to look like a fool. That's very humiliating. But that's exactly what the devil does in college, in the workplace. You believe in God? Oh, do you believe in the tooth fairy as well? How many of you have heard these kinds of comments, right? That kind of ridicule, that kind of pressure. My friends, even our own family can put that kind of pressure on us. We can think of uh, the, uh, the Muslim believers who come to Christ and their family puts immense pressure on them, even to the point of threatening them with death if they don't leave Christ and return to the Muslim faith. I was speaking to a, a young girl some time ago. And I was just astonished to hear it. <clears throat> I was astonished to hear her tell me she went to church twice every Sunday. She was living and walking with the Lord, and I was so happy to hear that, and we were talking about that, and I was encouraging her, much the same as Paul is here, to stay true to the faith, and we started talking about her family, and she said, yes, my mother, my mother, she says to me, boy, I, wish, I just wish the old, and I won't say her name, but the old uh, person would come back again. Let's just say her name was, 
was uh, Jill, okay? I just wish the old Jill would come back again, who used to party and, and live up the high life and living in sin. And, and, and this is what her mother said to her. I was astonished to hear that this, this young woman, who was not even out of her teen years, was still remaining true to the faith, even in spite of pressure that was, she was receiving from her own mother to live a life of sin and to party and to, and to live it up. My friends, these are the kind of pressures that people can face. And these are tribulations. Through many tribulations, says Paul, we must, we must enter into the kingdom of God. Another thing that we, another kind of tribulation that we can face is disappointment. Disappointment in the ministry itself. As we think about what it means to be missionaries for God, as we think about the missional life that God calls us to live in this world, we face many disappointments. This too is a tribulation. We can think about the, the ministry of this own church, right? And we look at empty benches. We look at places where many young people used to sit, and now they don't worship with us anymore. And this can be very disappointing. It is extraordinarily disappointing. And, 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 and we think this is a tribulation that we face. We can think of controversies through which this church has passed in past, past years. We think about those acrimonious meetings. We think of accusations that were hurled back and forth and then the, the rupture of the church happened and people left and, and, and here we are today. And we live with this. And it's very disappointing. Through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. This, our church's own outreach efforts. We do this. We have this endeavor. We put forth this effort and we see so little fruit upon it. And it's disappointing. And through many tribulations, says Paul, we must enter into the kingdom of God. And so these tribulations are a cause then that accelerate this spiritual entropy, this spiritual decline. And the apostle is, is focusing in on that very sharply in this, in, this, uh, in, this, in this last visits to these four cities. Now, my friends, I'd like to then turn with you to the apostolic practice. Now, in light of these great facts that people... Christians are naturally inclined to decline, to walk away from God, to, and I don't even say to walk away from God, but ever so slightly, to fall away, bit by bit, from God, spiritually to decline. In light of that fact, what does Paul do? Well, he encourages them to remain true in the faith. He reminds them of the great cause of these things, that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. But then verse 23 when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Now the Apostle Paul moves to set up an order in the churches. Today we use the word a polity. It comes from the word politics. I know we don't really like that word, right? But church polity is just a church order, a church government. And Paul sets up this government then, this order in the churches, to prevent this spiritual entropy, to stand in the way of it. And so God has... Uh, ha well, let me say something about these elders, my friends. Let me just stop and let's look at this situation. Let's think about this a minute. Because Paul has gone from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra to Derbe. He's come into Derbe. He's preached the gospel there. Uh, uh, people have believed. Christians have come. We know that in Lystra, at least... The situation was very much a pagan situation, right? These were not Jewish people who came to Christ. These were Gentile people, pagan people who came to Christ. Remember, they wanted Paul to be or, uh, Hermes and, and uh, Barnabas to be Zeus. They were going to sacrifice to them. And we would assume the situation was the same in Derby. 
What kind of men could there have been in those churches that could be elders? When only days, weeks, maybe a month before, they had been pagans. And they had just come to Christ. And surely there was a great deal of enthusiasm as they had come to Christ. Their sins had been forgiven. They lived a new life now. They saw a new hope and purpose in their life. But but were they ready to be elders? It can't possibly be. Well, again, my friends, I draw your attention to the fact that in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God works very immediately. Actually, I see I'm moving on into my fourth point here, the apostolic advantage. I'm going to kind of blur these three and four together, I guess. But notice it says, finding the elders, how? It says that, it just says in verse 23, when they had appointed elders. So evidently, Paul and Barnabas just selected these men to be elders. But which men? How could they possibly know which men could serve as elders in the church when they had just become Christians? Well, again, the Spirit of God worked very immediately and very powerfully in those days. And evidently, my friends, God had anointed with special power and insight and wisdom and discernment certain men in the church. So it wasn't so much that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders is that they simply recognized the men on whom the Spirit of God was and said, these men will be elders. Because it was so obvious that these men had received from God that special endowment, that those special gifts. Paul will talk more about them later. But those special gifts of wisdom and of knowledge and of insight. And in those days, God would give these men special ability even to speak languages that they had not learned. God would give them even special words of knowledge, I mean direct revelations of his mind directly into their mind. And these men, Paul and Barnabas, recognized, not so much appointed as if that, you know, they were all just there and Paul and Barnabas said, well, you and you and you will be elders. No, they said, well, these three men here clearly have the Spirit of God. We recognize that fact. And, upon, and, and you now will serve as elders in the church. Because again, there's no possible way that these men could have had the experience that we typically expect of elders in the brief time that Paul had been in that city. So again, we see, that's my fourth point, right? The apostolic advantage, and I say the apostolic advantage over us in our own time and circumstances, right? Because we don't have that advantage. And, uh, and so the apostles were able to select elders. But now, again, my third point, the apostolic practice, I want to emphasize that, my friends, is that the apostles appointed these elders and set up these elders in the church to prevent that slide, to prevent that decline into spiritual apathy, spiritual decline. These elders have that function in the apostolic church. And again, uh, I realized as I was making this sermon, I preached a sermon before here on elders. Remember that, well, if you do remember, that uh, the apostle here was probably very much copying what had taken place already in the Jewish synagogues. The Jewish synagogues were also ruled by elders, and the apostle, being very much a Jew, carried that practice over into the New Testament church. And so they appointed elders in these churches. And do notice as well the plurality of elders, right? In verse 23, when they had appointed elders, right? Not just one elder. There was a plurality of elders that the apostle saw in his wisdom would be the best way to govern the church of God that these men with their collective wisdom would work together to rule the church of God and to prevent that spiritual slide. And we know that in time, as these churches grew, 
they would elect deacons as well, as was clear in chapter 6 of the book of Acts. Well, let me move then to my points of application on on these points. My first point of this, my friends, is vigilance. Vigilance. As we started the sermon talking about this, this natural inclination that every child of God has to slide into spiritual decline, spiritual entropy. And how this uh, magnifies for us, it highlights the need as believers, my friends, for a constant practice of self-examination. Self-examination. Now, my friends, as human beings, as human persons made in the image of God, God has given us this ability to step out of ourselves, as it were, if, if I can use that language, to step out of ourselves, to take our heart, as it were, to put it on the table and to take it apart, to take our profession of Christ and to put it on the table and to examine it, to put it to the test. And this needs to be a regular practice amongst believers. Why? Why? Because of our natural tendency to spiritual decline. If you grant, my friends, if you own that fact that there is this thing of spiritual entropy in the life of the children of God, then this practice of self-examination is necessary. Now, in our churches, we have the practice of practicing self-examination before the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And so already you can see how our fathers worked that into the very life and routine of the church. That every time we have the Lord's Supper, we have that week of preparatory, that week of self-examination. Where God calls us then in a special way to step out of ourselves and to turn around and to put ourselves to the test, to examine ourselves. That means, my friends, that we have to be honest with ourselves. And by the way, how this should drive us to our knees in prayer, because we're so rarely honest with ourselves, right? I was just talking with an old friend from my previous church last night. He was visiting us, and he kind of in a humorous way said, you know, I can raise other people's kids very well, but I'm not so good at raising my own. And, of course, he was just putting, putting in, a, in a humorous, lighthearted way, right, the sense that, you know, our own actions, we always tend to read with a lens or through the lens of, well, it's not that bad, right? And we always try to downplay our own weaknesses and our own sins, even while we see the others with such clarity, right? And so, my friends, that should be a matter of prayer to us that God would give us to be honest and sincere with ourselves, to examine ourselves and to see those places where we may have declined. And you know where those places often are? Those places where we we see the first hints of that spiritual decline in our life is those places that other people can't see. Now, if you stop coming to church, we'll see that, right? We'll notice it. But if you stop the practice of secret prayer, no one will notice And there starts that spiritual decline, my friends. Because we can begin to to live a life that's outside of the the view of others. 
And that can begin to decline then. We begin to give way to certain temptations. We begin to turn our ear to the devil. We begin to rationalize certain sins. And slowly, incrementally, very slowly, the devil is very subtle, my friends. You think the devil would come to you and say, hey, why don't you have an affair with the neighbor? The devil knows that he's not going to get anywhere with that. That's way too big a step. No, 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 the devil's going to start by saying, hey, you know, do you really need to be so strict with your reading of Scripture? Do we really need to, you know, every night before we retire to our beds, ask the Lord's blessing upon our day and, and so on and so forth? Those small things, right? Those small steps. He knows how to get you. And he knows your own particular weaknesses as well. And, and, the, and the devil is so smart. He'll, he'll take something that is, that is good. Let's just take your work, for instance, right? That's something good and noble. But he'll push it to an extreme. So that pretty soon as it begins blocking out other things that are equally important. The devil can take something, we were talking about this with my sons a while back, how the devil can take something even good like, say, exercise. Physical exercise, that's good, right? But push to an extreme, right? It becomes now something that drags us down. The devil is so subtle. And that's why, my friends, we have the Spirit of God. God gives us his Spirit so that we can turn around and look at ourselves, examine ourselves, and see those places in our life where you say, you know what, this is not going in the right direction. This is not going in the right direction. And it gives you that opportunity then to turn and to be more vigilant and to say, I'm going to change that. I need to change this. I gave you three things, my friends, that can assist you in this practice of self-examination. Three things, faith, hope, and love. And these three things can help us organize us, our thoughts, as we turn around and as we look at ourselves. Faith. Ask yourselves, am I drifting in, in my knowledge of what Scripture teaches? We should always be growing in our knowledge, and yes, I mean intellectually, in our knowledge of what the Bible teaches us. My friends, do you know more about the Bible this week than you knew last week? Right? We always have as much as we learn, right, there's always things that we're forgetting, right, sometimes as fast as we learn them, unfortunately, but, but ask yourselves that. Faith believes truth, right? Paul said, continue in the faith, in the truths of the faith. Am I learning the truths of the Christian faith? Am I, am I perhaps knowing the truths of the Christian faith, but I'm drifting away from the truth? Maybe I'm beginning to give, give ear to other doctrines and other philosophies and other worldviews that are pulling me away from Christ, Hope is my life in heaven, is my heart in heaven. Lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break and steal. Is my heart in heaven? When we see and when we hear the loss of Rena DeVries from our midst this week, my friends, is there that, is there that desire in, within us that says, Lord, she's been delivered from all the pain and the tears of this life? What a blessing that is for her. And what a blessing that will be for me one day when I can be transitioned out of this, valley, this veil of tears, as our catechism says it, into the place where God wipes all tears from our eyes. Hope. Do I have that expectation? Or is my life in this world? Love. Love for the brethren. 
which, by the way, the love for the brethren is the sign and the manifestation that we love God. Those two are so closely connected. Love for the brethren. Are there people who, who I've fallen out with in church who I can't shake their hand? Make it right, my friends. Make it right. So this is vigilance, this constant need for self-examination. In the second place, my friends, I point out to you the great gift that God has given to his church of elders. Elders. Now, before I say something about that, I just want to say something about how we select our elders. Again, what a difference it is in our own day from what it was in the apostles' day. And yet there is this one thing that has not changed. And my friends, you need to think about this when you think about choosing elders for the church, for the ministry of the church, that is the one qualification has not changed. And that is we choose men on whom the Spirit of God is. We don't choose men based on their prestige or their influence in the community. We choose men who have the Spirit of God and who manifest that Spirit of God in their life. Now, we don't have the visible signs that the Apostle Paul had. Or you remember even on the day of Pentecost, they had a flame of fire. Wouldn't that be nice if we could just see? There's an elder, and there's one, and there's one. That's not what we have in our day, is it? That's not how the Lord works in our midst today. Why? By the way, I can't explain that, right? The Bible doesn't make that clear to us. But this is how God expects us to do. He expects us to use our own minds to discern which men have the Spirit of God upon them. Which men show the fruits of the Spirit? Again, you can read them in Galatians. We have the qualifications for elders given us in the pastoral epistles. And those are the men who have the Spirit of God. And those men we elect to serve us as leaders in the church. That's how we find elders in our own day. But the one thing has not changed, and that is the qualification. The Spirit of God. The presence of the Spirit of God. But my friends, as a church then, do we recognize elders And do we treasure and value their leadership? For this reason, that they have been given us by God as a gift to help us avoid that spiritual slide, that spiritual entropy that is so much a part of our life. You can see that very much so in the Belgic Confession as I gave it there on the outline. That we believe, It says in Article 30 that this true church ought to be governed according to the spiritual order that our Lord has taught us in his word. Now, now what is that spiritual order? Here it says that there should be ministers or pastors to preach the word of God and administer the sacraments. There should also be elders and deacons along with the pastors to make up the council of the church. By this means, true religion is preserved. True doctrine is able to take its course. And evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check. The apostle says to these churches, continue in the faith. And then he appoints elders. My friends, do you value the elders of this church? As you should, in light of this truth. Do you welcome them into your home when they call for house visitation? Do you happily sit under their uh, spiritual guidance and leadership? Now, we don't look up to our elders as if they're some kind of pope, right? But still, we recognize that God has given them this this task, this mandate to lead the flock, to shepherd the flock of God and to lead them into the truth. That means we should welcome their ministry. We should not resent as an intrusion their questions and their visits and their ministry to us. That should be something we welcome. It should be something we cherish. If you haven't been visited in a while, you should make that known. That should be a problem with you. You should say, where have you been? 
I haven't been visited in so long. That is the task of the elders, to lead the flock of God. Welcome them and treasure that ministry because it's not just elders coming to visit, it's God himself who has established that order in the churches to prevent that spiritual slide that we all hate and fear. My last point is disappointment. My friends, we face many disappointments in our life. Through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. You know, this week, I met with the elders of the Protestant Reformed Church. Or, I'm sorry, I met with their mission committee. Uh, and the, and the, uh, my colleague from uh, Emmanuel Fellowship, we met with them to discuss different ways of advancing the cause of the gospel in this city. And as in our conversation, one of the brothers said, uh, he actually got this from Pastor Paul Murphy. I think many of you know him. Pastor Paul Murphy told this brother, he said, uh, Christians, especially when they're engaged in missional kind of work, need to have a capacity for infinite disappointment. Infinite disappointment. In other words, there can never be a disappointment or a discouragement in the life of a Christian that stops him in the tracks. He constantly pushes forward in the face of every disappointment. I thought that was a really interesting comment that Pastor Murphy said, you have to have a capacity for infinite disappointment. And so, my friends, when we face these tribulations, when we face this disappointment in the ministry, we have to push on. And even when we look, my friends, at our own personal spiritual decline, because we can even look within our own hearts and we see that kind of decline. You know, I noticed that. I couldn't help but notice that in the hymn that we sang before the sermon began. The second verse said, Lord Jesus, look down from thy throne in the skies and help me to make a complete sacrifice. I give up myself and whatever I know. Now wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Here's this hymn writer talking about this complete sacrifice that he wants to make to the work of God. And it's almost as if he wrote verse 2, it came flooding in on him how, how poor a job he did, he did of that. How far short he came of making that complete sacrifice. And then in verse 3, he writes, Lord Jesus, for this I most humbly entreat. I wait, blessed Lord, at thy crucified feet by faith for my cleansing. I see thy blood flow. My friends, if, if you sit here this morning with disappointment, not just with the ministry, but with your own self, if you're disappointed with your own self, when you see the opportunities you missed, when you see the little zeal that you have, how little boldness, how far you are from the Apostle Paul who said to Barnabas, let's go through all those cities again. The blood of Christ is set up for your cleansing. I read to you these verses which we considered in past sermons, but in Acts 5, Peter and John say to the Sanhedrin, he is the one, that is Jesus is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Peter said to Cornelius, of him, that is of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And then Paul said, just in the previous chapter, to the church in Antioch, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. My friends, in all our shortcomings, 
in all our weakness and all the mistakes and the failings that we have in our life, we may just bring those to the cross of Christ. We may see the blood of Christ flowing and being shed for our sins, also the sins that we commit as we seek to serve God in the missional life. His blood cleanses those sins away too. And my friends, it's in that blood and in that forgiveness that we can have an infinite capacity for disappointment. There's where we find power. There is power in the blood. That's where we find the power to live. That's where we find the power to push on. I pray, my friends, that the same power which which burned in the soul of the Apostle Paul would burn in your heart this morning. And that God would bless it to his glory. May God grant it for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we stand before you as those who have received from you this mandate to serve you, to seek first the things of the kingdom of God, to preach into all nations forgiveness of sins in the blood of Christ. Lord, we look at our lives and we see all the things that we do, Lord. We recognize how far short we come in this. And we lay it all before this cross of Christ. We say, Lord, forgive us our sins in this regard. Cleanse us. Give us a new heart, Lord, and a new spirit so that we would serve you out of gladness of heart and with joy. We pray, O Lord, that where there is anyone gathered with us today who recognizes that he also or she also has, has, has drifted from the truth of the gospel, has drifted from Christ, Lord, will you give them honesty and sincerity in their own hearts to see this drift, to see that decline, and to be vigorous in rejecting it, to change their life, to take hold, a fresh hold of the cross of Christ, to see the forgiveness of sins in the blood of Christ, to recognize the power that comes when we see ourselves as forgiven sinners and that they would repent, that they would return to the straight and narrow path which leads to life. Lord, keep us fixed, keep our feet fixed firmly upon that path and may we not stray to the right or to the left. Bless the elders of this church, Lord, as they labor in the gospel to keep our feet firmly fixed in that path. We pray, O Lord, that you would give them joy in their work and that the congregation would welcome them and receive their ministry gladly. Lord, we ask all these things then in the name of Jesus, who is God over all and blessed forever. Amen. Let's turn then in the blue hymnal to number 455. 455, where we, where we uh, sing in verse 2. With forbidden pleasures would this vain world charm, or its sordid treasures spread to work me harm. Bring to my remembrance sad Gethsemane, or in darker semblance, cross-crowned Calvary. Well, let's sing the four verses of 455 in the blue hymnal.
Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.